Let's start out with a statistic as we come back. It turns out that the Eagles' greatest hits, 1971 to 1975, compilation has now rolled past Michael Jackson's Thriller as the biggest selling album of all time. I thought when we did this show some years back that the greatest selling album of all time was the Eagles' greatest hits. Well, whether it was or wasn't, it apparently notched 38 million sales this year and is, I guess, back on top. The Associated Press notes that how sales are measured has shifted greatly since those albums were released. In the streaming era, 1,500 streams per song equals one sale. Go figure. How about this stat? According to the Pew Research Center, only 20% of American K-12 students are enrolled in foreign language classes. This compares with a median of 92% of students in European countries. How about this one? About 47% of millennials have at least one tattoo. That compares with 13% of my demographic group, baby boomers. The tattoo industry Yes, the tattoo industry generated $1.6 billion in revenue last year and is expected to continue to grow at the rate of 7.7% a year. I don't know about you, dear listener, but I long for the days when tattoos were a reliable indicator of someone being, well, a sociopath. There was a very high correlation between those who had been incarcerated and those who had tattoos. These days, if you have a tattoo, all it says is that, well, you have questionable taste, that's all. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry to say it. I'm sure that Johnny Depp had only the best intentions when he had Winona tattooed across his back when he was dating Winona Ryder. Pretty sure it didn't seem quite as wise after they broke up. And by the way, have you seen this story alleging that Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves are saying that, well, gosh, maybe they got married 25 years ago. Apparently, during the filming of one of their movies, someone was, someone was uh, on the set who was a licensed minister, and they said all the vows, and they're saying, God, God, maybe we were married. Now, I'm no legal scholar, so I don't know whether you have to have a marriage license to be legally married. I, I assume that you do. I don't know, but for some reason this reminds me of George Burns' famous quote, which was that I was married by a judge, comma, I should have asked for a jury. And speaking of the youngsters, as Ed Sullivan used to say, and while I realize that a reference to Ed Sullivan does date me, frankly, I feel sorry for people too young to remember the late, great Ed Sullivan. But here's the stat, according to NBCNews.com. American teenagers now say they prefer texting to talking to friends in person. That's according to research from Common Sense Media. In a survey, 35% chose texting as their favorite form of interaction versus 32% for in-person conversations. Roughly 89% of teenagers now have their own smartphone, up from 41% in 2012. 
The majority of those surveyed also acknowledged that apps regularly wake them up at night and distract them from homework. Well, if you're doing your homework in the middle of the night, there's got to be something wrong with this picture. The Week noted in a piece by Carolyn O'Hare, who was the managing editor, an editorial actually, on the July 20th edition of the magazine. In China, in the 1950s, fewer than 20% of people were myopic. Among young adults there today, it's close to 90%. This has something to do with tech and people looking at things on little screens, but uh, no one seems to have it quite dialed in yet, but this is a disturbing statistic. 20% in the 1950s to 90% today? I guess it's great if you own stock in an eyeglasses company. Or Mr. McMillan asked me to clarify what myopia is. That would be nearsightedness. Yeah, an article here about eyeglass companies I need to, to go into if I can put my hands on it. In the meantime, let's talk about the, the headlines that were bandied about last week, asking whether it was perhaps too soon for Louis C.K. to return to stand-up comedy. Yes, this is one heck of a burning issue in contemporary America. Apparently, the superstar comic has been in seclusion since admitting to multiple incidents of masturbation in front of what is described as horrified female, horrified female comedians in dressing rooms and other private settings. I don't know about you, but I'm horrified. And I wasn't even there. Yeah, I guess he showed up at a comedy club and he was let on stage and some people are saying, oh, it's too soon to let him back. My question is, how do, you, how do you figure that one out? Let's see, masturbated in front of, let's just say, nine women. Uh, so what, that gives you a, a, nine months in exile? One month per masturbatory episode? I'm a little confused on this math. Here's what I'm really confused about. The, the Louis C.K., you know, is it too soon debate was all over the media. In the meantime, something that got mentioned only in the week, I think, was the fact that um, we just passed the 17th anniversary of the war in Afghanistan, America's longest-lasting war by quite a wide margin. The week often has excellent briefing sections, taking a look back at, um, at the things in the news and sort of summarizing them in a nice, cogent fashion. And I think a, a few quotes from the briefing on our endless war in Afghanistan are probably worthwhile. In answer to the question, what's the country like now, the staff at the magazine said Afghanistan has changed a great deal since the U.S.-led coalition first invaded in December 2001 to topple a Taliban government that had given safe haven to al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. The population of Kabul has shot up from 1.5 million then to almost 6 million now. They note that's bad news for the Taliban because cosmopolitan urbanites are much less, much less likely than rural peasants to submit to Taliban's harsh form of Sunni Islam. I would comment that it's also good news for the Taliban because all their opponents are now in Kabul. And in fact, the Taliban now controls more territory in Afghanistan than it has at any point since the invasion in 2001. In answer to the question, how many U.S. troops are there? The magazine said when President Obama took office, there were 30,000. And what we would have to describe as an ill-advised move, which we certainly lobbied against for what it's worth on this program, Obama tripled the force to more than 100,000 at its peak in 2011 in the hope that a decisive blow would bring victory. We would editorialize at this point that 
if you're going to have a decisive blow, you should first decide what that blow is going to be. You should also decide what defines victory. Defining it as, well, the other guys give up, I guess, is probably not good enough. Donald Trump entered office deeply skeptical of the war, but the military persuaded him to continue supporting the Afghan army. Reluctantly, Trump boosted forces from 8,400 when he took office to nearly 15,000 now, which are on an open-ended mission, apparently without any goals, as far as we can see. He has eased restrictions on the use of armed drones and airstrikes, saying, we will fight to win. Again, it'd be nice to have a definition of how you define winning. This seems to be a perennial problem with American overseas adventures. We didn't have an idea of what winning constituted in Vietnam. We don't appear to have a concept of what it means in Afghanistan. The magazine editors note that 15,000 U.S. troops can't defeat the Taliban. They're merely fighting to keep Afghan forces from collapsing. Those forces number about 300,000 at varying levels of training. But there is what's described as frequent desertion. In 2016, nearly 7,000 soldiers and police were killed, at which point the government stopped releasing figures. Why can't the U.S. just pull out? Well, the answer was because the government would surely fail. Afghanistan would once again become a Taliban-ruled medieval society, and both al-Qaeda and ISIS would have free reign there to plan and carry out attacks on the U.S. Most experts in the region believe that negotiating with the Taliban is the only way to end the conflict, but that such negotiations much involve pressure and input from powerful neighbors, including China, India, Russia, Iran, and most importantly, Pakistan. To the question of why is Pakistan so important, they answered, well, to date, Pakistan has played a double game. The U.S. relies on Pakistani land and airspace to supply its troops, yet the Pakistani military also allows the Afghan Taliban to retreat into its territory. That's why Pakistan's new prime minister, Imran Khan, sworn in just a few weeks ago, is described as a possible game-changer. Well... Maybe. Khan, an ethnic Pashtun, like most Taliban, is a fierce critic of the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan and has long advocated for negotiating with the Pakistani Taliban, earning him the nickname Taliban Khan. But he has said Pakistan needs a stable Afghanistan and the U.S. hopes that Khan can nudge the Taliban to the table. Well, as we like to note in the show, hope does spring eternal, doesn't it? What's the cost of this war in Afghanistan? Well, you might be disturbed to realize that most estimates put it at around $4 trillion and counting. But if you add in the future costs of the war veterans and their health care, as well as the interest on the money borrowed to finance the war, the figure actually is said to approach $8 trillion. And the magazine notes much of this money was wasted through corruption and mismanagement. We talked about all this back in the Bush years. They were building building things that were just, you know, falling down before they were even finished building them and took a big fat paycheck and cashed it, I guess. This was uh, contractors of, of our Pentagon. And frankly, I don't want to get into that again today. But you may want to note that by 2014, $109 billion had been spent on reconstruction alone, which is more in today's dollars than the entire Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe. Yet, you might note, Afghanistan still lacks adequate roads, adequate schools, and adequate infrastructure. 
The United States is spending $45 billion on Afghan security and economic aid, which is more than double Afghanistan's GDP. It would seem by most standards that our war in Afghanistan has not been a success. But then again, it depends on what measures you're using to evaluate success. If you're a military contractor and you're getting large, large, large sums of money to fly drones, build hospitals that fall down, uh, supposedly build roads that never get built, well, you know, you're doing okay. I think we need to lighten the mood somewhat on the show. We, we occasionally do do medicine on this program, which I suppose must make them very proud back at my alma mater. Here's a piece we've touched on before, maybe quoted from before, but I think I'm going to quote from again. It's from the New Scientist, June 9th issue of this year, titled, No Need to Detox. A piece by Anthony Warner notes that the idea that some foods or drinks can rid us of toxins is bunk. The quote from the piece. For those who rail against overinflated health claims on the things we consume or use, the term detox has long been a bugbear. The implication that foods, drinks, diet plans, spa treatments, or even hair straighteners can somehow fast-track poisons out of your body has no basis in science, yet has been made real in the public's mind by constant repetition. By the way, I happened to be in 7-Eleven this morning and noticed that there were these products called immune boosters that are not immune boosters. They're just vitamins. Save your money. But at any rate, the article goes on. Anyone with a functioning liver, kidneys, and digestive system doesn't need any help removing toxins. Most are broken down or excreted in hours. There's no firm evidence that juices or electrical appliances can make any difference in this. So three cheers for a decision that will see detox used a little less. The Unilever-owned Puka Herbs was told by the UK Advertising Standards Authority not to use the term to advertise one of its teas. Given that there is no scientific evidence that it can remove toxins, this is sensible. But apparently the, the ruling was a bit squirrely in this case. The ASA, Advertising Standards Authority, considers detox to be a general health claim along the lines of better for you or healthier choice. The T fell follow the rules due to the lack of any relevant proven general health benefits rather than specific proof of an ability to remove bodily toxins. They note, for example, that a product fortified with selenium, a mineral that has allowable health benefit claims, I mean, it's true, if you, it's a micronutrient, and if you have none in your body, you will suffer, but you don't need very much. That's for sure. At any rate, they judge it allowable to make claims regarding immune function and antioxidant properties, which is crazy. Author Warner notes that, in theory, that means he'd be allowed to promote a new range of detox sausage rolls, which actually, actually doesn't sound all that bad. <laughs> Attention, Jimmy Dean. We should do a future program on, on what is allowed in advertising, the, the kind of misleading garbage you're allowed to throw at the public um, because, well, yeah, the terms are not, well, they don't necessarily mean what the public thinks they mean, and our regulatory authorities seem to be okay with that. And another article relating to some dubious health claims is from the New Scientist September 1st issue. Well, I was surprised to learn that there are companies out there that will sequence the DNA genome 
in your gut bacteria. Magazine notes that emerging research does suggest that cultivating a healthy balance of these organisms, collectively known as the gut microbiome, can protect against some of the biggest health threats around, including obesity, diabetes, heart disease, irritable bowel disease, arthritis, and depression. And while people are looking at the possibility of managing these conditions by managing your gut microbiome with drugs, some say that, you know, we should just do it with food. Since we don't really understand this, we don't really understand how to manipulate it, chances are that knowing the DNA sequences that tell you what's in your gut, it's going to be of limited value. Some of these companies are handing out dietary advice on how to boost 17 types of bacteria associated with reduced risk of developing a range of diseases. But, well, the science is just not very clear on this. In fact, I have to note with some levity that I was discussing diets with a lot of my colleagues, people that have been practicing medicine for 35 years, and the degree of uncertainty as to what we all should be doing remains disturbingly high. That's all I'm going to say. And in a somewhat related, comma, insane story, <laughs> I would note that according to the South Korean news agency, when Kim Jong-un traveled to the Singapore summit to meet with Donald Trump, he brought along a portable personal toilet in order to make sure that the CIA or other foreign intelligence agencies did not get samples of his stool to gain insights into possible health problems. It should be noted this was not pure paranoia on the part of Kim Jong-un. During the Cold War, the CIA reportedly obtained stool samples from Soviet leaders Mikhail Gorbachev and Nikita Khrushchev. We presume that in these endeavors, they were employing agents somewhat lower in level than the James Bond types. You know, I vaguely remember reading a story about this. When it was Khrushchev or Gorbachev or somebody came to America, the CIA re-plumbed his toilet. So instead of feeding into the normal sewage system or whatever hotel he was in, they captured it all. You know, and here's an item that has absolutely nothing to do with anything we've talked about so far, or probably we'll talk about afterwards, but, you know, I don't want to let today's show pass without, without inserting it. Apparently, a Chinese kindergarten principal hired a scantily clad pole dancer to liven up a back-to-school ceremony. In doing so, she angered hundreds of astonished parents. The parents were attending the event with their five-year-old children on the first day of school. They watched open-mouthed as the dancer, wearing black hot pants, a skimpy top, and heels, began to shimmy up and down a flagpole in the kindergarten's courtyard to a soundtrack of thumping dance music. Yes, reportedly cell phone videos showed several boys in the audience copying her moves. Inundated with complaints, Principal Lai Rong defended pole dancing as good exercise. And while it possibly is, officials nonetheless summarily fired her.
All right, we got about eight minutes left on the show, and I should probably talk about some of the criminal activity going on with the weasels that operate in Silicon Valley. But doggone it, I don't feel like it today. You know, I've bagged on the New Yorker several times in the last few weeks because some of their issues just didn't seem to have much in it I found interesting. But, fortunately, the September 17th issue has a piece by Thomas Mallon that yours truly was intrigued by and I would like to talk about. The subject of the piece by Thomas Mallon was about uh, a new book, a new biography of Wendell Wilkie. Wendell Wilkie is a name fading into the woodwork of history, but in reading the article about him, I think he should be better known. And to, <laughs> to help render him better known, we're going to talk about him, or at least what the book had to say about him. Wendell Wilkie ran for president of the United States. He was the Republican Party standard bearer in 1940 and attempted to prevent Franklin Delano Roosevelt from earning a third term as president, something that had never been done before and will never be done again. Wendell Wilkie was evidently not a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. In fact, apparently during the Republican convention that wound up nominating him, he slipped at one point and referred to convention delegates as you Republicans. As you're no doubt aware, dear listener, Wendell Wilkie did not become president in 19, losing to FDR rather handily. It, however, was not a landslide like the two previous uh, times that elected Roosevelt. He thumped Hoover pretty good in 32 and was a, giant, was a landslide against Alf Landon in 36. Here's a quote I like from the piece by Thomas Mallon. Wendell Wilkie did not become president, but during the next four years, he did become a superior political specimen, an ever more reflective, out-of-the-box character whose place in history is not as Donald Trump's precursor, but as his non-toxic opposite. Wilkie rescued his new party from isolationism. Trump, 76 years later, converted its foreign policy into a supine, russophilic reincarnation of the America First doctrine. Wilkie stayed on his dark horse after losing to FDR, discovering that defeat, however painful, became him. Willing to engage in often exasperating cooperation with the president, he ended up proposing a bolder and more inclusive version of his former opponent's plan for a post-war world. A previous biographer, Stephen Neal, writing four, days a four decades after the failed run in 1940, asserted that largely because of Wilkie, Americans entered the war with a common purpose. It has been somewhat lost to history that the Republican Party did everything possible to prevent the United States entering the war in Europe against Hitler, joining the British side. Conservative Republicans, and actually a lot of other Americans as well, were determined not to get involved in a war in Europe again. World War I was still fresh in memories. Not much good came out of that conflict for America, and we, a lot of folks did not want to see us getting involved, in spite of the fact that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were taking over all of Europe. Well, they hadn't by fall of 1940, but they'd been making some good progress. France had fallen by then. In this era of a divided country, where, where people are, are picking up one side and refusing to acknowledge the possible points of the other, refusing cooperation, etc., it's really refreshing to look back at this character named Wendell Wilkie. 
Wilkie had been a lawyer for General Electric, shades of Ronald Reagan, who profited by his, uh, his association with GE. He battled the TVA, FDR's plan to uh, bring electrification to large areas of the South. He wound up being part of a settlement with the TVA that was extremely lucrative for GE. But curiously, as late as 1936, Wendell Wilkie was a Democrat. In these legal battles, he earned a lot of favorable press. The article notes that media puffery turned pointedly presidential in the early months of 1939. One of his legal opponents noted that Wilkie had been nominated by the magazines for president. There was, of course, a political apparatus at work. The liberal Republican machine in Connecticut and many others began a petition drive among Ivy League graduates that quickly secured 200,000 pedigreed signatures on behalf of Wilkie. Theodore Roosevelt's, Theodore Roosevelt's notorious daughter, Alice Longworth, who was a board member of America First, wasn't far off the mark in saying the Wilkie's candidacy sprang, quote, from the grassroots of a thousand country clubs, unquote. <laughs> By the way, Mr. McMillan, we need to do a show, at least a segment, sometime in the, point, in the future on Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Noted. I find it very curious that Wilkie, running against a lot of people in the Republican Party, thought we ought to get involved and was basically on the same side as the man he ran against, Franklin Roosevelt. Here's where I think things are really interesting. After he was defeated in the presidential election in January of 1941, Wilkie decided to go to Europe. He was compelled by a fervent concern over Hitler's advances and no doubt by a desire to stay politically active and visible. But protocol demanded he consult with the president before and after the trip. And like it or not, he appeared to be Roosevelt's envoy. When he got back, he testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on behalf of Roosevelt's Lend-Lease proposal. And his appearance may well have secured the bill's passage. Amazing. But the cost to Wilkie, who hadn't given up thoughts for the second run for the presidency, was further alienation from the Republican establishment. Wilkie's close aide, Lemoyne Jones, recalled that Roosevelt always liked to exploit Wendell's virtues, knowing that he was aiding his country while injuring Wendell politically. The president outfoxed him throughout his third term. In fact, in 1942, Wilkie and Roosevelt were basically collaborating. He, Wilkie went on a world tour. Roosevelt dispatched him with instructions and messages to be relayed to various foreign leaders. And he provided Wilkie's transportation, a converted B-24, borrowed from the Army Air Force. When he got back, he wrote a book about his experience, probably was helped in writing that book. But it was titled One World and has been described as the most influential book published in the United States during World War II. On a lot of stuff, Wilkie was actually out in front of Roosevelt. He recommended getting a second front started to help the Russians long before we did so. Wilkie, Wilkie mouthed off about uh, India, irritating some of the American and British uh, readers of the book, saying that freedom means the orderly but scheduled abolition of the colonial system. It's a remarkable thing to contemplate this um, cooperation between the Democratic and Republican Party standard bearers in the 1940 election. Uh, unfortunately for America, Wilkie died of a heart attack in October of 1944. He'd made a stab at the Republican Party nomination in the fall of that year, but had been eclipsed by the party regulars who ran Thomas Dewey instead. Dewey went down in flames against FDR's fourth successful attempt to become president. It's especially interesting to contemplate this era uh, at a time when 
George Will is suggesting that voters forsake the Republican Party for the Democrats in this fall's midterm elections. George Will. Well, you may want to read the article that's in the magazine. You may want to read the biography that it's based upon. Anyway, I think I should close with a callback to last week's um, talk about the passing of the late, great Burt Reynolds. Sort of surprised to think that Reynolds, who was the top box office star in the world, I believe, at some point in the late 70s, uh, was kind of finished by the 1980s. Obituaries about him note that he did find himself mired in debt. Reynolds blamed his financial woes on his messy divorce from actress Lonnie Anderson, who accused him of battery. But they did note that his rather extravagant lifestyle, he had 100 horses, a petting zoo, and an always-on-call private jet at his Florida ranch were probably also a factor. And, you know, I really liked him in Boogie Nights back in 1997. That was his only Oscar nomination, and sadly, he did not win. He's awfully good in that movie. And he is awfully good in Deliverance. That can't be denied. Looking back at his career in 2015, he expressed regret that he hadn't begun to take acting seriously until he was in his 40s. He's also rather legendary for the roles he turned down. Han Solo in Star Wars. Retired astronaut Garrett Breedloff in Terms of Endearment. Cop John McClane in Die Hard. Reynolds once quipped, I'm the only movie star who's a movie star in spite of his pictures, not because of them. And I think I'll close with another great Burt Reynolds quote. He said near the end, I may not be the best actor in the world, but I'm the best Burt Reynolds in the world. This program was produced by Edwin McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you soon. He's They can't be done. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound, just like a bandit run. Keep your foot hard.